everybody who's glad to be at church today. Anybody glad to be in God's house? Can we just give him the best praise we can today? Yeah, I'm so glad you're here. So glad you're in church. And for those of you who are online with us right now, you're live or you're watching later on as a, as a replay later on in the week, I want to welcome you as well. In fact, this week I just kind of realized, man, we actually have people watching coast to coast from Jacksonville, Florida to California. There's, there's people in California who send their tithes to City Hope Church every month. Come on, you guys are making a dimpact, an impact, a difference all around America and around the world. And, and hey, a big hello to our 430 campus as well. Come on, one more time, Cedar Elm. Let's welcome everybody online. Glad you're with us today. Glad you're part of our church family. And before I get into the message, um, we're, we're in week three of a series we're calling The Holy Bible. And we're going to get into that in just a moment. I do want to remind you of some things you just heard on the announcement video, the news video, but I want to remind you that Easter is just two weeks away, everybody. Resurrection Sunday for those of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that's the day that he rose from the dead. Amen. He didn't stay dead. He got up out of the grave. And so we celebrated on, on this weekend, April 7th and 9th, and we do have seven different service times to choose from. And so I want to draw attention to something you saw in your seat when you came in today. It's these invite cards that were in your seat. Now, these were not there for you to pick up and move over to a couple more seats down the row, okay? These are for you to take with you this week. It's six invite cards. Sometimes we say we've got a six-pack for you, all right, a six-pack of invite cards, one for every day between now and next Sunday. We want you to just ask God who he wants you to invite. Who is it in your life, a friend, a coworker, someone that you know, maybe a neighbor, maybe a stranger that God wants you to invite? And, and here's, here's what we want. Easter is one of those times of the year. It, it's the perfect time for you to have someone who's unchurched or maybe far from God sitting next to you in church, all right? And if you, if you call City Hope home, this is one of those times I'm asking you, do whatever you got to do to have someone sitting next to you who, who needs Jesus, who may be far from God or distant or, or maybe they're, they're unchurched. Um, and so uh, use those cards to invite somebody. And you don't have to be churchy about it. Just tell your story. Just tell what God's done in your life because what God's done in you, hey, how many of you believe he can do it in somebody else? Amen. If he did it for you, he can do it for somebody else. I believe that. And so... So we just want to share that. And then, of course, on Easter weekend, we have seven services. There's one Friday night, two Saturday, three Sunday, and then our Sunday night. And I, I want to encourage those of you who may be in a, a Sunday morning experience to consider going to Friday, Saturday, or our Sunday evening campus because Sunday morning is one of those times that it's 82% it's of people who are invited will say yes to, to Easter weekend, 82%. That's what the studies show. And so most of them are going to come on Sunday morning. We want to make sure that this place is ready and available for every guest who walks through the door on Sunday. So unless you're bringing somebody with you, go to one of those different services, all right? All right? And, uh, and it's the same service. It's not a different service every day. It's the same service Friday all the way through Sunday night, and, and you'll be blessed by that. And then help me do this, too. Help me pray. Because I'm believing God, I'm believing that we're going to see 120 people say yes to Jesus on Easter weekend. Come on, let's be praying about that. Asking God to touch hearts. He's, he's still saving, amen. He's still redeeming. He's still, he's still uh, bringing people to him. And so let's believe for that on Easter. And then one thing I want to tell you about. I normally don't tell you when I'm not going to be preaching. But I'm telling you on purpose when I'm not going to be preaching. Next Sunday... I'm not going to preach next Sunday because we have a special guest in the house, all right? It's uh, Reggie Dabbs is going to be in the house with us next Sunday. And if you don't know who Reggie is, you figure to know who Reggie is next Sunday, all right? We, we actually brought Reggie in uh, last month to some of our schools in the area. He's the, one of the number one public school speakers in America, but he's also a, an, an incredibly anointed and gifted preacher of the gospel, by the way. So uh, he's going to be preaching next Wednesday. So if you got to hear him, if you were a student and you got to hear him last month, then do everything you can to get your friends here next Sunday. And if you were in one of the schools he didn't get to go to because it got snowed out, then do everything you can to get your friends here next Sunday because it's going to be powerful. All right? All right. If you got it, say got it. All right. Good deal. Well, we are, we're in week three of this series called um, The Holy Bible. And uh, we're going to jump into to 
our topic for today is how do I know I can trust it? How, do I, how, how can I know that I can trust the Holy Bible? But before I do that, I want to I read a, a version of the Bible that you might not be familiar with. Now, we all know there's thousands of languages across the world, right? In fact, um, we're part of an organization uh, that is helping translate the Bible. There's about 1,300 languages, I think, that still don't have a Bible, and we're helping translate those, those in, into the language, the Bible into those languages. Um, but when I was in Bible college, I heard of a, a translation or a version of the Bible called the Hawaii Pigeon Version. And uh, I had a friend from Hawaii. He, at me, he actually brought me this version of the Bible. I don't know where it is. I've lost it somewhere. But it's called their version of the Bible... Is called the Jesus book. That's what it's called. It's the Jesus book. And so I was reminded about that yesterday, and I thought, man, we ought to have a little bit of fun and read a part of the Bible from a different, a different language, all right? So it's sort of English, but it's not really English, all right? And, and just so you know, like, uh, for those of us who maybe we, we grew up on King James, and we think, man, King James only is the way to go, one of the arguments of that would be, if, if that is true, then the entire world would have to be able to speak English in order to read the Bible. And I don't think that was God's, ever God's intent. Can I get an amen there? So it's translated using the original manuscripts into thousands of languages across the world. So we're going to have a little bit of fun. And let's look at John three sixteen and 17 in the Hawaii Pigeon translation. You can find it in your Bible app. It goes like this. God... God get plenty of love and aloha for the people inside the world. That's why he sent me his one and only boy. Because of that, everybody that trusts me know go and get cut off from God forever. They, they go and get that real kind of life. How many of y'all want a real kind of life? I, I don't know what, I want that. The life that stay, go, that, that go and stay I can't even read this. That stay to the max forever. I want the, the kind of life that stays to the max, right? He goes on and says, you know, when God sent me, his boy, inside the world, he never do that to punish the people. No, he sent me to get the people out of the bad kind of stuff they stay do. So there we go. A little bit of fun. You can read that anytime you want in your Bible app. Just go to languages and then choose the Hawaii pidgin language. It's, it's, a great, it's a great translation. All right. All right, here we go. We're going to actually look at our theme verse of this series. It's in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And Paul says to Timothy, he says, here's how you can know you can trust the Bible. All right, you can trust the Bible because all scripture is inspired by God. Come on, everybody. This isn't, the Bible is not just a book that you read once and then you shelve it. It's not like it's gone, gone with the wind and, man, I read that. It was a really cool novel. No, it has something to say to us. It's inspired by God and it is useful. I've read some books before that weren't very useful. But the Bible isn't just useful. It teaches us what is true. So how do I know what's true, Pastor Ben? The Bible. It, it makes us realize what's wrong in our lives. It shows us right and wrong, what's good, what's wrong. But it also straightens us out, and I'm thankful for that, because I know some of y'all need to be straightened out. Just, like me, we need to be straightened out and teach us what is right. So this is a book that you can, you can learn from, you can grow from it. And the word Bible just simply means book. But what makes this book different than all the other books? It's that one word that comes in front of it, the Holy Bible. This is not just an ordinary book. It is a book given to us from God. And we're going to talk about how can we trust it. Because a lot of people would say it's not accurate. It's been changed through the ages. It's, it's been manipulated through time. There are websites. There are movies. There are TV shows. There are all kinds of um, social media influencers who would try to convince us. Their whole, their whole job is to try to get us to dis to doubt the Bible, to discredit the Word of God. But I believe all of their attempts fall short because this isn't just any book. This is the holy book. It is the holy Bible given to us by God himself. I believe that, all right? And so um, today's message is going to be a little bit different. Um, 
it's going to be more along the lines of apologetics. And I know that's a big word for us. Uh, it has nothing to do with apologies. But apologetics is kind of a churchy word for this. Apologetics is the defense of Christian faith and the response against the objections that people bring up against Christianity. So while we all need to be able to, to defend our faith to a degree, there are people who are apologists. Like they're, they're professionals. They are dedicated experts in apologetics. And I am not one of them. <laughs> all right, so that's the bad news. The good news is I'm smart. And I learned from a whole lot of other people who are a whole lot smarter than me, all right? So I can't take credit for any most of what I'm going to share with you today, I've, I've gotten it from other sources, from other, uh, other pastors and teachers using their outlines and just resourcing. Um, so I'm, 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 I, I wasn't born last night, but, but uh, I was born at night, okay? And I am smart. And being smart means I'm going to use other people's resource from time to time. Can I get an amen on that? All right? So I'm going to use, if, if, you, if you are interested in people who really are apologetic-minded uh, apologists, I would recommend Joshua McDowell. He wrote a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. He wrote a book called Beyond Belief to Conviction. And so those are, would be some good resources that I could recommend to you. But... Um, what I want to do today is I want to, I want to kind of compile some of, the, some of the things that I've learned and some of, uh, some of the resources that I've gotten from these different pastors and teachers, and I want to give you just five thoughts on how, why you can trust your Bible, okay? Five thoughts on why you can trust it, and we're going to jump right in today, and it's going to be really practical, okay? Number one, you can trust your Bible. So like, I can trust my Bible because the Bible is historically accurate, all right, jot that in your notes. It's historically accurate. So some people would say, well, man, I, I just don't know if you can trust the Bible because not everything in the Bible really happened. They would argue that, um, that Jonah and the well, that was just a metaphor. That Noah and the flood, that didn't really happen. That's a metaphor. Jesus didn't really come back to life. He didn't raise to life. That's just a metaphor. Moses parting the Red Sea, come on, metaphor. But the only problem with that is that the Bible says the word of the Lord is right and true. And I know some of you would say, well, you can't use the Bible to prove the Bible. Well, I'm doing it right here. It is right and true, all right? And okay, so let's get a little bit more practical. Okay, how do we know it's true? How do you know it's historically accurate? So Historians would tell you three things need to happen in order for something to be proven historically accurate. Three things. There's three tests it has to pass. All right? And number one in your notes there is the first thing is there needs to be eyewitness accounts of, of what happened. In order for history to be proven accurate, someone saw it with their own eyes. And did you know that the Bible was not, it's not hearsay? Did you know the Bible is not investigative journalism? It's, it's not something like where, where they knocked on people's doors and they were like, hey, we, we heard that you know someone who's a cousin of a person who used to live in this part of the world 3,000 years ago. Can, can, you, can you tell us what, what they said? No, it was written by eyewitness accounts. People actually saw what they wrote about. So think about Moses, for example parting the Red Sea. He wrote the first five books of the Bible, so Moses was there. He saw firsthand what happened, and you might think, well, that's, see, that's the problem. He wrote it so he could say whatever he wants to. I hear what you're saying, but there was also two and a half million other people there who saw the Red Sea part. I don't think he just made it up, or they would have thrown him into the Red Sea. You know what I'm saying? Like, he was there. He saw it with his own eyes. The, the people who wrote the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they were there. They saw the miracles. They saw Jesus preach to the thousands. They saw him be crucified. They saw him after he resurrected from the dead. They saw it. And even though they didn't collaborate, their stories corroborate. Y'all can tweet that. Even though they didn't collaborate, it's not like they got together and they were like, hey, Matthew, what are you going to put in chapter 2? They didn't do that. Yet when you read their Gospels, they align. They say the same thing. Why? 
because it's historically accurate. But so it's not just it's not just eyewitness accounts. It's also those eyewitness accounts need to be recorded and copied with extreme care. So so you're not just like passing this down verbally. It's passed down in words, in paper, in scrolls. It's 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 passed down in writing. And I think, I think God chose the Jewish people to be scribes because they were, they're so meticulous. And I don't know if you know much about the Jewish people and the scribes of those days, but they did not, they did not translate or they did not transcribe the, the Pentateuch and all of the books of the Bible word for word. They transcribed them letter for letter. So, so when they transcribed the Pentateuch, that's the first five books of the Bible, when they transcribed that, they knew what the middle letter of the, of, of the Pentateuch was. And as they translated it, when they finished, they would count from the middle letter to the front and the middle letter to the back. And if it didn't match, if they didn't come up with the same count as the original manuscript, then they threw it out and they started over. Word for word, letter for letter. They, they were meticulous in how they transcribed the, the, the Pentateuch. Um, and, and even some people would say, I mean, I understand that that was then, but Pastor Ben, this is now. Things have changed. The, the Bible has changed. It's been translated and retranslated over and over and over again. Some people even mistakenly believe that the translations we're reading now are translated from previous translations. No, they're translated from original manuscripts. And I don't have all the details in front of me to give you this, but the, there are more manuscripts of the Bible than any other book on the planet. The only book that comes close is Homer's Iliad. The Bible has more manuscripts than any other book on planet Earth. And what you're reading today is not based on what was, in, what was translated 100 years ago. It's based on what was originally written thousands of years ago. Uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Prove a point in that. The Dead Sea Scrolls were found in the 1940s and 50s. Um, a little history on the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, so just to catch you up. Um, Israel, when Jesus walked the earth, was under Roman, uh, Roman government, right? Well, in AD 70, after Jesus is gone, 70 years later, the, the, the temple in Jerusalem was ransacked. Everything was destroyed. Jerusalem was destroyed. The Jewish people were dispersed all across the world. That's why you have pockets of Jewish people all around the world. How did Jews get to Russia? AD 70. All right? It's, it's, where, it's how Jews got to where they are today, and they're beginning to go back to Jerusalem. Well, the, the scrolls at that time, they, they were trying to protect the library of the synagogue. And so they took this library from the synagogue, they secretly took it and hid it in caves at the, at the Dead Sea, which is below sea, sea level, and it's the hottest place on earth. I was there last year, I, I, and I saw the caves where these scrolls were found. Eleven different caves held all of these different scrolls. And do you know what they discovered when they began looking at these scrolls and testing these scrolls? That they match all of the other manuscripts that had been found thousands of years ago and that your Bible is a complete match to those manuscripts. It's, his, it's historically accurate. I've got to move on. It's also there, the third part, the third test, is there, there has to be archaeological confirmation. This was an archaeological find for the, for the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? But when I was in Israel last year, I saw for myself hundreds of places where where the earth, where archaeological digs, excavations are continually proving the Bible happened and it is what it says it is. It's happening. So that's the first part, historically accurate. Number two, in your notes, jot this down, is I can trust the Bible because it's scientifically accurate. Scientifically accurate. So as Christians, we believe that God created everything, right? We believe that God's the creator of the heavens, the earth, time, medicine, the stars, anatomy. He created it all. All right? So, but, but the problem we run into sometimes is that, that science is always changing, isn't it? Anybody notice that? It seems like science is always evolving. But can I tell you the word of God does not evolve? 
The Word of God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Science may change, but the Word of God doesn't change. In fact, Psalm 148 says, let every created thing praise the Lord. Why? Because he issued his command. He spoke all things into creation, and they came into being. He spoke it. He set them in place. How did all of this happen? It wasn't a big bang. It wasn't evolution. He set them in place. Who? God set them in place, everybody. And, and check this out. His decree will never be revoked. His decree lives on forever and ever. So the Bible isn't a science book. It doesn't have science language, but it will prove to be scientifically accurate time and time and time again. It just takes science a whole lot longer to catch up with what the Bible already knows to be true. All right? So, yeah. So let me show you a couple of examples. All right? Just, just a little bit of fun here. Um, these are things that would have happened back when the Bible was being written, all right? Uh, the Bible's scientifically accurate. Here's, here's a couple of examples. A lot of people thought that the earth was flat. Even a few hundred years ago, maybe some of you th- think that. And that's okay. It doesn't, it doesn't change whether you're going to heaven or hell, okay? But, but the Bible says something different about this. I mean, even uh, people, when, when America was discovered, we're not sure if the earth is round or flat, but if they had just read the book of Isaiah, they would have seen where Isaiah says, God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. The word circle is where we get our word sphere or globe. How did Isaiah know that the earth was a sphere? How did he know that it was a globe? Maybe he didn't know. Maybe God spoke it to him. David knew that the earth wasn't flat because he said as far as the east is from the west, that's how far he has removed our transgressions from us. See, what David's trying to teach us here is that the love of God, the the goodness of God, the grace of God is limitless. It is boundless. It is immeasurable. And if, if it was measurable, he could have said as far as the north is from the south because you can measure that distance. But he said, as far as the east is from the west. Why? Because you can go west and never find east. And you can go east and never run into west. That's because the earth is a globe, not flat. If the earth was flat, then God's love would be limited. Because east to west is a measurable distance. Are you all following me? I know that may be a little deep and outside of my, my normal range of teaching, but... but by the way, this, I didn't get that from anybody else. God showed me that one. So y'all, come and just take that right there. All right? So it's, it's scientifically accurate. So, so the earth, people thought that the earth was flat. How about this one? People thought that the earth had to be held up by something. So the Greeks, for example, the Greeks, they believed that Atlas was holding the earth up. Remember, have you seen the statue of Atlas? And he's, he's holding the, the world on his shoulders. The Hindus, they believed that the earth was held up by four elephants standing on the back of a turtle, standing on the back of a serpent swimming through the sea. That takes a little bit of faith. I'm just, I'm just saying. It takes a whole lot of faith, right? The, the Egyptians believed that the earth was suspended by, by columns or by pillars, but all, all these people had to do was just open the book of the Bible, the oldest book of the Bible, Job. It's not the first book of the Bible. The Bible's not written chronologically. But most theologians believe Job is the first book of the Bible. If they had just read Job, he says he spreads out the northern skies over empty space. And he suspends the earth over what? Nothing. Nothing. Well, we know that now. We have satellites. We can see that. But God has said it for thousands of years. How about, how about this one? Um, a lot of people believed that the, the number of stars could be counted. Now, e- even though um, God told Abraham, I'm going to give you more children, more descendants than the stars in the sky or the sand on the shore. You're not going to be able to count them. Still, people thought they could count the stars. And so in about 129 B.C., a Greek astronomer named Hipparchus, he decided, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to count the stars. I'm going to prove they can be counted. And so he came up with the first catalog of stars, and he counted 850 stars. 
boom. What y'all talking about? I can count the stars. Well, if, so, so everybody thought, he's just so awesome, he's great. Well, a couple hundred years later, another astrologer came along. His name was Ptolemy, and, and he decided, I'm going to prove Hipparchus wrong. And he counted 1,022 stars. I showed him. There's way more than 850 stars. <laughs> but if they had just read the Bible... If they had just gone to Jeremiah, they would have seen where God says in his word, the stars of the sky can't be counted, everybody. They can't be counted. So I'm a researcher. So what I did was I Googled it. Just wanted to know how many stars are there. And NASA can't tell us how many stars there are. They, they give a little estimate. You know what an estimate is. It's an approximation. We're not sure... And so they said that there are, are an estimated 200 sextillion stars. Now, I don't know what that number is. I can't even imagine that. It's not millions, billions, trillions, or quadrillions. I don't know what sextillion is. That's a lot. And by the way, last, last month, they found another ring in our solar system. So even if they could count the stars, God's going to say, told you so, you can't count stars. But this is in the Bible, thousands of years ago. It's scientifically accurate. How about, how about this? Some of you know of this guy. You know of a man named Hippocrates. Anybody heard of Hippocrates? Hippocrates was um, um, B.C., before Christ. He was uh, 460 B.C. And he's, he's the father of medicine. All right. He came up with um, humoralism or humorism. It's the study of biles of the body, the different fluids within our body. He is, um, he, you ever heard of the Hippocratic Oath? It's named after him. He, he's the father of the Hippocratic Oath. He was a brilliant guy. But did you know he believed that too much blood can make you sick? Too much blood can make you sick. And so what they would do is if you got sick, we, we're going to have to cut you open. You got too much blood in you. It was called, have you ever heard of bloodletting? Now, it's not popular in our culture because it doesn't work, but people believe this for years. Uh, somebody just coughed over here. We're going to have to cut you open. We've got to cut you. What would happen is they would cut you, and they would bleed you out. They would, they would reduce the amount of blood in your body so that you would get better. It's how our first president, George Washington, died. He, he had a sore throat. Hey, press, we're going we to have to cut you. They cut him three times. He lost 40% of his, his blood and, and died. So it didn't work out for him, okay? But this is crazy. We, we know this isn't true. This is ridiculous, Pastor Ben. Yeah, people believe this, but the Bible is scientifically accurate. It said from the beginning in the book of Leviticus that the life of the body is in the blood. Come on, somebody ought to shout right there. The life of the... How about this? How about this? Your spiritual life is in the blood of Jesus Christ. That, you, yeah. Our life is in, it's in the blood of our bodies. So uh, rewind to 2020. Our, our government, the CDC says, we got a quarantine. We, we got a quarantine. Y'all thought that the government came up with the quarantine. Y'all thought that they were smart enough, that the CDC was, was the brilliant mind behind the quarantine. That was, that was God. That was God. All the way back a couple thousand years ago, he said, hey, when you have an infectious disease, if you're contagious, the priest will quarantine the person for seven days. Come on. It wasn't the CDC or the government. It was God who said that, everybody. It was in the Bible, scientifically accurate. I'm just, I'm just trying to show you today that man didn't write the Bible. God did. Come on, somebody. Man, man didn't write it. God wrote the Bible, and the words of the Lord are flawless. You can bank on these words. You can bank on these promises and on the word of God. You, you can live your life based on these words. Man didn't write them. Well, how did they know, Pastor Ben? Maybe God told them. Maybe that's how they knew. Right? Maybe the Holy Spirit revealed it to them. All right, let's look at the, a little bit more spiritual here. Number three how can I trust the word of God? How can I know it's real? I can trust it. Well, you can trust it because it is prophetically 
accurate. So it's, this is a little bit more spiritual here. It's prophetically accurate. Now, a prophecy is something that has been foretold that must be fulfilled. Does that make sense to you? So like if I stood up here and I said, yea, I say unto thee next Sunday, you're going to have a Lamborghini in the parking lot. If I said that was a prophecy, then if it didn't come true, I'm a liar. That's what I would be, is a liar. Are you following me? But I'm not prophesying that to you because, all right. So a prophecy, did you know, a prophecy, so prophecy is uh, something foretold that has to be fulfilled. Did you know in your Bible there's 1,200 prophecies? And did you know that over 300 of them are about the Messiah, Jesus? Over 300. And did you know that the last prophecy about the Messiah, about Jesus, happened 400 years before he was born? So, like, these weren't prophecies that, like, Jesus came around and then they were like, they're like man, oh, snap, we need to come up with some prophecies to, to get this in the, in the Bible. No, they happened 400 years before Jesus. That would be like the last prophecy coming over on the Mayflower. That's a long time ago. And these prophecies weren't generic. It wasn't like, yeah, the Messiah, he's going he's gonna to have uh, long hair and, and a beard. And he's going to be Jewish. Also, he'll probably wear a robe and have like these cool sandals. Uh, no, that, that's generic. The prophecies about the Messiah were things like he's going to be born of a virgin. What? And he was. He's going to be born in Bethlehem, and he was. He's going to flee to Egypt. And he did. And he's going to come up out of Egypt back to Galilee. And he did. And he's going to die on a cross. Did you know that David predicted the death of Jesus on the cross before crucifixions were ever a thing in Israel? Hundreds of years before crucifixions were ever a thing. Crucifixions didn't, they didn't come to Jerusalem or Israel until the Romans came. And so David has no idea what a crucifixion is, yet he says that the Messiah will be hung on a tree and that they will gamble for his clothes and that not a bone of his body will be broken. How? All of that happened. Every bit of that. Jesus fulfilled hundreds of prophecies. In fact, there was a, there was a researcher, his name's Peter Stoner, and uh, he did a, a study called Science Speaks many years ago. And, and in this study... Um, they, they ask the question, what are the chances that one person could fulfill eight of these prophecies? Like, just eight of them. I mean, there's hundreds, but what would it take for one person to do eight? And all of these researchers, these analysts, they worked together, and, and they came up with the number that it would be one in 100 quadrillion. That's the chances. The chances of one person fulfilling eight prophecies is one in 100 quadrillion, to give you an idea that is 1 to, in 10 to the 17th power. That's, that's a lot. That's a lot. And in case you're having a hard time grasping that, they said that it would be like if you, if you filled the entire state of Texas with silver dollars two feet deep. Now, y'all understand Texas is a big place, right? I was in Maryland last week. I preached in Maryland and uh, Maryland is, like, small compared to, compared to Texas. Like, like, Texas, it takes 14 hours to get from one side to the other. Y'all with me? It's a big place. So they said it would be like if you filled the state of Texas with silver dollars two feet deep, and then you took one silver dollar and you marked it with an X, and you threw it out into the state of Texas, and then you, you flew a guy in a helicopter blindfolded, and then he said, lower me here, just here, let's go here. And they lower him down to the ground, and he, and he has one chance to pick up the right coin with an X on it. That's the chances of one person fulfilling eight of these prophecies. And Jesus has fulfilled all of them. Now, there's a few who he hasn't fulfilled, by the way. There's a, there's a few that he hasn't, 
he hasn't fulfilled. And you say, well, Pastor Ben, how does, how does this happen? How is it possible that one person can fulfill all of those prophecies? How? How can that be true? How is it possible? Well, let me, let me say it this way. Maybe prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But maybe the prophets, though they were human, maybe they spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Maybe that's how they knew everybody. Maybe the Bible isn't man-made, but maybe it is inspired by God. Amen? Maybe Jesus was right when he said all of this, this is all happening to fulfill the words of the prophets as recorded in the scriptures. He's saying, I am the fulfillment of all of the messianic prophecies. I'm the fulfillment. See, there's some prophecies that haven't been fulfilled yet. Like prophecies like, Jesus is coming back. I don't know if you know that or not. I don't know if you understand that, but Jesus is coming back. And he's coming back for a church that's ready for him. He's coming back. He's not coming back for a weak church. He's not coming back for a powerless church. He's not coming back for a church that's like, I don't know if this is really the word of God or not, or if I can trust the word of God. He's not coming back for that. He's coming back for a powerful church that says, I will live or I will die based on the word of God. That's what, that's, he's coming back for a church like that. Come on. So this is the kind of book that we can build our life on. Revelation says it this way. These are the words. These words are trustworthy and true. I can build my life on it. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, who wrote the Old Testament, who wrote the New Testament, he sent his angel to show his servants the things that are going to take place one day. Jesus is coming again. And by the way, our next series begins the week after Easter, and it's on the second coming of Jesus Christ. I'm neither an apologist or an eschatologist, but we're fitting to talk about the second coming of Jesus, all right? So y'all get ready for that, because we're going to study the end times. Let me give you the last one, the last one, or not the last one, second to last one. So I can trust the word of God because it has survived all attacks. It has survived all attacks, which makes me ask, why has it been attacked? Have you ever wondered that? Like, like, why has the Bible been attacked? Like, wh why, why do people care so much about this in the first place? I mean, if it's not true, if the Bible is not something you can believe in, if it's all metaphors and it's not real, then, then why would you be concerned about it? Here, I said it this way. I felt like the Lord gave it to me this morning. It's one of my contributions to, the, to today's message. That if the Bible is nothing to be concerned about, then why are people so concerned about it if it if if it's not true then why are you so against it if it didn't happen then what does it matter if it's just a bunch of stories then what difference does it make why why be against it maybe it's been attacked because the devil knows just how life-changing it is Maybe it's been attacked because he knows that if you get into the word of God, it will revolutionize your family. It will change your life. You'll find freedom. Maybe that's why. Maybe that's why. One person said that the Bible is the most despised, derided, denied, disputed, dissected, debated, outlawed, and destroyed book ever written. But why is it still here? How do we still have it if people are so against it? Why is it that the Bible thrives under persecution? That Christianity thrives under persecution? If it's not right, if it's so wrong. Have, have you ever heard of a guy named Voltaire? I didn't think so. Voltaire. He was a French philosopher, late 1700s I think it was. Uh, he, he was an, an enlightenment writer. He was known for his criticism of Christianity. Here's what Voltaire said. Within a hundred years, the Bible will be forgotten. Well, look who's forgotten. <laughs> you know what I find really funny about Voltaire? Is that, yeah, hardly any of you recognized his name. But what's even more interesting is that 
he, he said after 100 years, nobody will remember the Bible. Nobody remembers him. In fact, 100 years after his death, his home became the headquarters for the French Bible Society. I love how God works, <laughs> right? I'll show you. It, it survived all attacks, yet it lives on. Peter says it this way. He says, the, the grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures. You can't stop the word of God. You can't stop. So you know what I'm going to do with it? I'm going to hide it in my heart so that I won't sin against him. And it, even if they do come and take my Bible, it's going to be in my heart. It's going to be in my life. It's not something I've read once. It's not something that I put on the shelf. But it is inside of me. It endures forever. It endures forever. So, so why does this matter, Pastor Ben? Why are you so passionate about this? Here's why. Because I feel like as a church, and I mean the capital C church, not just City Hope, but the church as a, as a whole, we have some questions that we need to answer. We have some questions. We need to do some soul searching. We need to do some digging. And we need to answer the questions, what is the final authority on my life? What, what is the final authority? Will I attack God's word or am I going to live by it? Will I deconstruct his word or will I defend it? Will I follow the world or am I going to follow the word? We've got to answer those questions. And at least for me and my house, as Joshua said it, we're going to serve the Lord. For me and my house, we've decided that we will stand on the word of God. We will stand on this book, come hell or high water, even when it says something we don't like. Even when it says something, I don't know if I agree with that. It's not my choice. God said it. It's in, it's in, it's in the Word of God. So I'm going to stand on that. And I think God's looking. I think He's looking for a church. He's looking for a people who will stand on the Word of God. He's looking for a people who will say, God, your way is higher than my way. Your way is, is, is a better than my way. You have a standard that is far above my standard. I don't completely understand it, but I'm going to build my life on it. I'm going to live by it. He's looking for some people who would say, hey, you can beat me. You can persecute me. You can arrest me. You can kill me, but I will not deny the word of God. It is the power of God unto salvation in my life. It's the word of God I'm standing on building my life on the Word of God. So I've, I've, I've tried to get us to a point in this message today where I could, where I could tell you this one thing, right? the one reason that you can trust the Word of God. You're trusting so many things. You're going to get in a car and you're going to trust that car to take you somewhere. You're going to trust the people driving on, on the streets around you not to run into you. You're going to put your faith in red lights and green lights. You're going to put your faith in governments. You're going to put, put your faith in, in roller coasters. You're going to put your faith in the ocean. Pray to God you don't get eaten by a shark. But you have a hard time putting your faith in this? It's a, it's a faith journey, everybody. It's a faith journey. And I'm just going to take it at its word. If he says it, I believe it. I may not understand it. I may not even agree with it. I may not even comprehend with what, what he's saying. But if you said it, God... I'm going to believe it. So I brought, I brought us to this one moment to tell you that you can trust the Word of God because it has the power to change your life. Power to change it. But only if you go all in. That, that's the caveat. You know, a lot of people, they say, well, I tried Christianity. I tried church. 
Well, I tried the gym too. I still don't have a six pack. I've tried a lot of things, but the only things that really worked in my life were the things that I went all in with. And I don't think the Bible's any different. It has the power to change your life if you'll go all in, if you'll fully surrender, if you'll trust Him. It has the power to change your life if you'll live by it. I think that's why Jesus said that if you hold to my teaching, if, you, if you'll hold to it, if you'll, if you'll lean into this, if you will give me a year of your life, that's one of the guarantees, one of the promises we have at, at our church is that give God a year of your life and we promise you, you will not be the same a year from now. Give God a year. And I believe Jesus in some, some way here is saying, hey, if you'll hold to my teaching, hey, hold on to the word of God for the next year. Dive into the word of God. Go to 21 days of prayer when we do it in January and in, in August. Go to growth track next Sunday. Begin to discover the gifts and the passions that God's put in your heart. Begin serving other people. You've never been baptized? Be water baptized next Sunday. You've been waiting for the perfect opportunity? There never will be one, but next Sunday be the closest you'll ever get. Take those next steps. Go all in. Give him everything. Hold to his teaching. And he says, if you do that, then you're really his disciple. See, there's a difference between going to church and being his disciple. Churchgoer, disciple, this is a big difference. And Jesus says, if you'll go all in, then you'll know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Come on, let's give God thanks for that. feel a burden today just to pray for us would you would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me and just uh, ask the Holy Spirit right now what are you saying to me what are you whispering to my heart what are you speaking to me today Holy Spirit right now we just ask you to would you be clear to us be clear to us help us to hear you clearer than we've ever heard you before Father right now I pray for every person in this room today Lord that we would answer those questions, that we would come to an understanding of where we are with the Word of God. What do we believe about it? Is it what it says it is, or is it, is it something different? Are we going to build our lives on it, or are we, are we going to treat it like any other book? God, I pray that you, would, that you would do a work in our hearts where we would fall in love with the Word of God all over again, that we would fall in love with you more and more and more, that we would draw closer to you through your word, that we would learn to hide your word in our hearts so that we won't sin against you, that we would learn that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, that your word is sharper than a double-edged sword. It divides right down to the joints and the marrow, showing us what is right and wrong, that your word, that the sword, it's the sword of the spirit, show us how important the word is in our lives. Let us hunger and thirst for it because we'll be fulfilled. Father, we're praying that, that we would hold to the teachings of the word that show that we really are disciples. Show us your truth, the word of God. With your head still bowed, if you're here today and, and maybe you're far from God, maybe, maybe you've drifted in your faith, maybe you're even a Christian, but the truth is you haven't, you haven't been living like a Christian. Some people call that a practical atheist. You, you believe in God, but you're living like he doesn't exist. And if that's you today, maybe, maybe you've been trying to do things your own way. You've been trying to earn your way into heaven, trying to be good enough, trying to, trying to do everything your own way. Can I, can I invite you into a relationship with Jesus today? See, the Bible that we just taught about, it's... it's the Word of God, and it says that God loved us so much that He sent His one and only Son. That's who Jesus is. God saw the need for a Savior in the world. He, he saw all of the sacrifices couldn't fix that problem. 
All of the Jewish rituals couldn't fix that problem. There was nothing that could fix that problem. So he sent his son, Jesus, to live a perfect life. He was blameless. He was sinless. He was spotless. He never sinned, although he was tempted in every way that we are. Yet he, he, he did not sin. He lived a perfect life. But he was wrongly accused and crucified on a cross. That was God's plan. God's plan was for him to be sacrificed once and for all that you would not have to pay your way to heaven anymore. And he sent his son Jesus to die on a cross to be sacrificed for our sins. The payment for our sins. He took that so that you wouldn't have to pay it. He died. But on the third day, three days later, he rose again. And right now, the Bible says that he's at the right hand of the Father. And he's praying for you. He's praying for you in this moment right now that your eyes would be opened. That you would have an aha moment. That you would accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That you would step into a relationship with him. And all it takes is one simple decision. It's simple, but it'll cost you everything. All you have to do is believe in your heart and confess it with your mouth. Believe that Jesus is who he says he is and confess that he did what he says he did. Confess him as Lord and Savior. And if that's you, you're ready to do that. You're ready to confess him as Lord. On the count of three, I want you to boldly lift up your hand and let me lead you in a prayer. I'm not going to embarrass you or call you to the front. But I want to pray. I want to lead you in a prayer. If that's you, one, two, three. Come on, slip up your hand today. Slip it up. I see you up top. I see you. One, two, three, four. Anybody else? Say, that's me. Come on, lift it up boldly. Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Who else? I'm so proud of every one of you. I'm so proud of every one of you. Amen. Hands down. Let's say this prayer together. Say, Jesus, I believe in you. You are who you say you are. I repent of my sins. I ask you to forgive me. Cleanse me. Make me new. Thank you for a fresh start. I confess you as my Lord, my Savior. And I believe you are who you say you are son of God and the savior of the world and from this day forward I will live for you the best I know how in Jesus name amen 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 come on let's give God the best praise we can let's thank God for salvation today